Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's episode, lesson number 16 of our Passover Passion series. And today my topic or my title is pleasure. We've been talking about the Passover season. We've been showing how Jesus is the reason for the season. He's fulfilled all of this um, so beautifully. We've seen so many point-by-point ways that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. And so now let's carry it a little bit farther. And I know that at the time of this taping, it's actually the day after we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus yesterday, but we're going to continue on with a few lessons here, and then we're going to move into actually getting ready for the next feast, Lord willing. There's there's so much that the Lord has shown me that I think I'm going to be doing some shifting here. But for today, let's finish out our Passover Passion series with the last few lessons that we want to discuss, and one of those is today's, and it's titled Pleasure. We've looked at the Feast of Passover, and then we've discussed a little bit about how the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the second feast of the seven annual feasts, would begin immediately after Passover. And that's the one that has the High Sabbath. There is a High Sabbath day on the first day and on the seventh day of Unleavened Bread, no matter what day of the week it happens to fall on. And so we looked at last lesson, we talked about the um, death of Jesus in that he did die and then he had to be buried. He was buried. And so we looked at that a little bit in that last lesson. In the last lesson, we really focused on the ashes of the red heifer and his fulfillment of that feast or of that sacrifice as well. But now we want to look at this in light of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because as that dead body was buried in the ground, those clean persons, remember Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, did in fact bury it. Now I want to go back and just pick up briefly a topic from when we looked at the Passover Seder. And I mentioned at that time that we would bring this back up again. At the Passover Seder, in a portion of the time frame that the meal occurs on, there's a particular order that happens. And at one point in that order, there is a matzah tash. We talked about it in the pouch, uh, the one that was titled pouch a few lessons ago. And they would take the middle piece out, break it in half, Put, the, put one half back in the matzah back in that back in that pouch, and then the other piece is called the afikoman, and it would be wrapped in linen cloth and hidden away to be brought back at a later time. Now, this is very pertinent to the understanding of Jesus fulfilling this feast. First of all, we looked at that matzotash bag. We bag. We talked about how it had the three compartments all in one bag, and it represents the triunity of God. He is El Akkad or Adonai Akkad, and that is the the united 
God, the, the one who is united even in his diversity. We do not serve three gods. We serve and worship three in one, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it was the middle one, God the Son, that came to the earth and died and gave his body as that broken piece of matzah. And he said so when he um, gave it to the disciples on the last Passover Seder he held with them. And we looked at that when we did the lesson on proposal. We looked at that when we saw him offering that afikoman, representing his own broken body to them, and then the fruit of the vine that they drank, representing his blood. So, if you'll remember, this afikoman that was hidden during the ceremony, during the Passover Seder, would be wrapped in linen, which is exactly what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus did for the body of Jesus, which is what Jesus said the bread represented. And then that afikoman was hidden away or buried behind a tomb that had a stone sealing it, remember, until later, and it would come back at a later time. And it actually, to the Jewish people, in many homes, it was considered their dessert. So we want to look at this Feast of Unleavened Bread and how it correlates with Jesus' burial in the ground and what it promises or brings us to at a later point. Just like the Afikoman was hidden away, but brought back later, we're going to see it fits that exact same pattern in the Afikoman that represented Jesus' body buried in the tomb, but coming back later to life again, and he was resurrected. So one of the first places to start is to understand what is the unleavened bread. Well, we've discussed this briefly in the other lessons, some of the other lessons, and in my Feast of the Lord series, where I did an in-depth teaching on every one of the various feasts and those elements of those feasts and how it correlated to Jesus. So you can go back and you can look that up on my channels as well. But the unleavened bread represented sinlessness. It was, it had no leaven in it. It had no yeast in it. It had nothing added to it that would make it rise or get puffed up with pride and other things. It was sinless. It was leavenless. And it represents the sinless one or the holy one. The leaven in scripture often represents sin. And so remember this unleavened bread was tucked away and Jesus as the sinless perfect lamb of God that died on Passover was actually tucked away behind a stone inside of a cold tomb in that he was buried. I want to begin today by reading a passage in Isaiah chapter 52, and then we're going to look at Isaiah 53. 
Behold, in Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant, who's talking about Jesus, shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, talking about this servant, referencing the Lord Jesus Christ, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Now that correlates with some other prophetic words in Isaiah and other places, and it also signifies his being born and growing up as a child, his youth and, and so forth, growing into adulthood. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. For we, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off or killed from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So that points us back to what we saw last time about the burial of Jesus being by this rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, etc. Verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, or to strike him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Or in other words, it's enough to, for him. He's satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is so appropriate and powerful to describe so much of what Jesus went through and what he had to go through and why. It's, he's the ultimate fulfillment of this entire chapter. But I want to focus on where it says, The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. In other words, seeing you and me is enough for him. That was what he was after. He was after us being able to come to know him in a personal relationship. I want to read a few passages of scripture, a few scriptures to you. The first one is in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go down, go toward the south, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake his, this chariot, or in other words, join, come close and, and come near to him. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture where, which he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that man, that eunuch, was reading Isaiah 53, the same place that we just read. And he came to realize that Jesus was the Son of God through the understanding that Philip gave him of that passage and how it so beautifully depicted Jesus. So, in that scripture, in Isaiah 53, it speaks about this pleasure of the Lord. What is it talking about? Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12, 
and verse 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus endured the cross because he saw and knew that there was a joy or a pleasure ahead of him. And it was set before him, but he had to go through the cross to get it. What was that? Oh, hallelujah. Let's talk some more about that in just a moment. First of all, let's look also at Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we're seeing here that Jesus was obedient, and Hebrews tells us he was obedient to the point of the death of the cross because he was looking at the joy ahead of him. And we know that that joy is us. It, that was what brought him pleasure. The pleasure of the Lord did prosper in his hand because of the eternal fruit of all the people that would come to believe in him. Friend, you and I were the joy that was set before him. We were the labor of his soul that he was seeing. I believe that as he walked up that hill, that, that maybe he saw all of our faces. He saw me. He saw you. He saw all those that have come since that time. And each and every one, as the, as the pictures and the, the people would cross through his mind, and he would think upon them, and he would see us, he was saying, she's worth it. He's worth it. I'll endure this because I love her that much or I love him that much. I'll go through with it. I'll go all the way. I'll spill every drop of my blood because I want them to know me. I want them and I want to give them everlasting life. I want them in my family. I'm going to do this for her and for him. And, and he would see that, and, and it was the labor of his soul that he was seeing. And he knew that there would be a prize at the end that was worth it. You and I were worth it to him. That's how high he valued us. And we've talked about that in the past in another lesson as well. Now, we know that as the unleavened bread, the afikoman, was tucked away, so he was buried. Now let's find some more references about this burial because it's going to be very important to understand this when we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the first place I want to go to is Psalm 118. I want to read Psalm 118 verses 15 through 20. And it says this in verse 15, The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. 
Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. So here we have to understand this is Psalm 118. It's the final, one of the final Hallel, Hallel Psalms that are sung or recited at every Passover Seder, and it's at the end of the Seder. When the Bible tells us at the end of the last Passover Seder Jesus had with his disciples that they sung a hymn and then went to the Mount of Olives, this was the hymn. So the very last thing that Jesus is speaking, singing, reciting, before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he knows he will be betrayed, bound, and ended up being led to his death. He's singing and reciting this psalm, and it is speaking prophetically of him, the right hand of the Lord being valiant in that it is powerful and it accomplishes its work. It's exalted. He hung on the cross. He lifted his arms up. It says, I shall not die but live. He died physically, but he did not suffer the eternal death of separation. God would not allow that. But he lived, and he lived again, and he declared the works of the Lord after his resurrection. He was not given over to complete death, and he did walk through the gates of righteousness again. He lived again. So this is one prophetic psalm about him and the, one of the very last psalms, if not the last. The only other Hallel psalm is called the Great Hallel, and it is in Psalm 136. And it's normally done on Passover day. Now let's look at Psalm 88, verses 3 through 8. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength. Adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more and who are cut off from your hand. Now, David, I mean, I'm sorry, the um, Heman, the Ezraite, is of the sons of Korah, is writing this. He says, you have laid me in the lowest pit in darkness in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up, and I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. So here it is. It's talking about how he's laid into the ground, laid in this uh, pit, and you know, dealing with this affliction. Then in Psalm 49, I want to read verse 7 through 9 and then verse 15. We looked at this in an earlier lesson also, but I want to go back to it again. Psalm 49, 7 says this, None of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for them. For the redemption of their souls is costly and it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. He was not given over to eternal separation and the second death. He was not given over to corruption. It says in verse 15, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall 
receive me. Then let's look at Psalm chapter 16, verses 9 and 10. Psalm 16, verse 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. We know that this is speaking prophetically about Jesus because it's quoted as such as being fulfilled in the New Testament. So we know that this is speaking of Jesus. Notice here how it says that he will rest in hope. Jesus was laid to rest, just like we saw in the last lesson when they would lay the ashes. They would gather the ashes and collect them and lay them somewhere and keep them up. Now, he was buried, but he is resting in hope. God is not going to leave his soul in Sheol or in the grave, and he is not going to allow him to see corruption. Why? The verse answers that. It says, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus is the Holy One, the pure, sinless, spotless One. And this is telling us that He trusted in God. If you'll remember the very last cry from the cross that Jesus spoke, said this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What he was saying there was a faith-filled declaration that he knew he would be vindicated because he was the Holy One. So he's resting in hope, trusting in God's vindication. You can understand more about that if you'd like to look into this, the Holy Week series I did. I did one on the cries from the cross, and I went over all seven of the cries that Jesus made, this being one of those. But what he was saying here was a faith-filled cry of his belief and his hope and assurance that God would vindicate him because he is the Holy One. He is innocent. He is sinless. He was the afikoman, unleavened bread, sinless, innocent, that was going to be hidden for a season, but not forever. Now, how could Jesus make this faith-filled cry and know that he would be vindicated? Because he is the Holy One, and he knows that God the Father is a just judge. He is just. He has no unrighteousness in him. He has no injustice of any kind in him. He always judges rightly and justly. Now I want you to see this because God had to raise Jesus from the dead. He had to, and I want you to understand why that is true. So we're going to look now in the book of Acts at Acts chapter 2. And I want to read beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw, the, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades or in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So here we see David quoting, or it being quoted, Peter's quoting David's words from the psalm we just read, and he is decreeing to us that God the Father raised up Jesus by the Spirit of the living God, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible. In other words, it was absolutely impossible for the grave to hold him. God unbound and set free. He made void and nullified the pangs of death, the anguish, the sting of death, we will look at in a moment, because it was absolutely impossible for the grave to hold him back, to grasp him or to be subduing him. He could not be held by anything superior because there was nothing superior. The grave could not hold the Lord. Now, why is that true? That is true because there was a superior law in effect that God had pronounced in the word of God. I want to look at right now, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says this, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's talking about all mankind, the iniquity. Isaiah told us that the iniquity of, of us all was put upon him. But in Romans 6, 23, it says this, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So sin has wages. And when someone sins, it brings upon them the death penalty. Death is the consequence of sin. And every person has sinned. We just read it in Romans 3.23. So the wages of sin is death. But there is a higher law. Jesus was the only one who was sinless, the only one that was truly innocent. Therefore, he never sinned. Therefore, he never was subject to death. He was never subject to the wages of sin. In other words, the grave 
had no power, no legal ability, no legal precedent, and no legal power to hold him down. It could not hold him. He had to come out of that grave because he was the Holy One. Now think about it this way. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof of several things that I want to close down with. First of all, it is proof that God is just. He is a just judge. He could not let Jesus rot in prison for a crime he did not commit. He took upon himself the iniquity of us all. It was laid upon him, but it was not from inside of him. He had never committed one sin. He became sin for us only to pay the debt that we owed. But because he was innocent, God would have been unjust to let an innocent person rot in prison forever. God was just, and the resurrection is the proof of that. The resurrection also is the proof that God accepted Jesus' payment of his blood to cover and forgive all of our sins. And the proof of that is that God raised him from the dead. I want to turn over now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a very long chapter, but it is an awesome chapter. And it is a treatise on our faith, on what our faith is based upon, and on what the guarantee of that is. It's an awesome chapter for you to read and be familiar with. But I want to read just a few sections of it for tonight. I want to read verse 3 through 8 first. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, and this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, which was the Old Testament, the Tanakh in that day. Those were the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. So the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins in our place, according to exactly what the Old Testament scriptures had demanded, and that he was buried, just like they, that was demanded as well, and we've seen that, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. The third day, he said he would be in the ground three days and three nights, but it also refers to the third feast day, the third Moed, Moedim, which was first fruits. That was the third of the annual feast he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he was seen and attested by several others. So we know that God accepted his payment. Now, 
It's also important for us to understand some of these verses from verse 12 through 26 of 1 Corinthians 15 as well, because this forms the basis of our faith. God accepted Jesus' payment on our behalf as payment in full, the once-for-all sacrifice. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he didn't raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiful. But now Christ is is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or of those who have died. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. Hallelujah. So Jesus is the one who has paid the payment acceptable to God. And the resurrection is the proof that God accepted Jesus' payment. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, anyone who truly believes in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the only work that was acceptable to God as the sacrifice payment for sin that he would accept. Anyone who believes in that is no longer dead in their sins, but is raised to newness of life. And I encourage you to read that in Romans chapter 6. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ also guarantees that God will raise us up in time to come. We too will be resurrected. It's part of the blessed hope that we look forward to when Jesus will come for us again and will resurrect us. Hallelujah. The basis of our faith is firmly grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. And it also proves to us, as we've mentioned here, not only that God is just, 
Not only that God accepts Jesus' payment, and not only that he will also raise us up for all who believe in Jesus, but it also guarantees and proves that Jesus' finished work was enough and was eternal. I want to close out by reading these final verses to you. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says this, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through, the, through His Spirit who dwells in you. We are guaranteed that God is giving life to us as well. Now I want to read in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. I love the way the New King James Version puts this. This is quoted, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll go back there in just a moment, Lord willing. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, it says this. God is speaking. He's prophesying. He's speaking pro prophetically about what he's going to do. God is speaking here and he says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O oh, death, I will be your plagues. O oh, grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. In other words, death and grave, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to nullify you completely. I'm going to cast you into the lake of fire and I will be the end of you and I ain't going to regret it. There's no pity. There's no mercy. I'm going to do it and it's just and good. God is going to bring us through and to complete the work and to destroy even death, hell, and the grave and throw them in the lake of fire. I want to turn finally back to 1 Corinthians 15 for just a few more verses. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? That's the quote from Hosea that we just read. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to leave us with this verse, which is exactly what Paul says. And this is our message for today. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. In other words, don't let anybody move you off of your position. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that we don't believe in him in vain and we don't worship him in vain and we don't serve him in vain. Every other religion 
worships or serves a dead Savior. Theirs are in the grave, and there's no empty tomb where they are. But our God has raised the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's His finished work that God accepted. And all we have to do is sincerely believe in Him, call upon His name for salvation, and He promises new life to us, eternal life to us, and even resurrection on that day. God has accepted Jesus' payment. It is enough. Praise God. I pray that this has been a blessing to you, and you can join us again as we are concluding our Passover Passion Series and preparing for the next series that God would have us to do. Blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.